This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. It's a wonderful opportunity before everybody this morning have this opportunity to, to continue working on this lesson of proving the scriptures. And in this series, we've been diving together into the Bible. We've been determining how the scriptures came to be compiled in the way that we have them today, how the books we have were included, and why others were excluded from the scriptures, and how the Bible is inerrant and infallible, and therefore the authoritative Word of God. It is the inspired Word of God, and is the greatest tool for us as people, as Christians, as spouses, as workers, as parents. But how can we trust that the book we hold today contains the same words as the books did when they were first written? You know, we have over 66 books written over a span of 1,500 years by 40 different authors. How can we trust that the words remain the same from the time they were written to now, about 2,000 years or more since they were written? You know, many atheists today are going to make the argument that even if the Bible was the Word of God, as it was written, that it would be like playing the game of telephone over thousands of years with texts and therefore would no longer be trustworthy. That's their argument. And today we're going to discredit that argument and discuss how and why we can trust the text that we read today and how they can be trusted as the Word of God. Today we're going to be discussing manuscripts and the history of translations. What is a manuscript? A manuscript is a copy of text, not necessarily the original. You see, the claim is that the Bible is so old and has been copied and translated so many different times over the years that it, that it can't be trusted. But that's really just not the case. The tools that they would use for this included parchment, which was dried animal skin. It would have had a very similar texture to the, the background here. It was just dried animal skin that they would write on. They would also often use papyrus scrolls, which was a plant that was cut into strips, soaked, pounded, and dried in order to be written on. Parchment often lasted a lot longer than uh, the papyrus manuscripts. But that said, we do also have a lot of papyrus manuscripts as well. Just the majority tends to come in the form of parchment. We actually see Paul himself asking for these tools in 2 Timothy 4.13. He says, The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments. Because he was a writer. He was going to write down all these notes, and he wanted to make sure that they would last. That's probably why he preferred to use parchments, because it was definitely a longer-lasting product, and he knew that he needed it to last forever, because this is the Word of God. The way manuscripts were copied was a very, very tedious job. It was done primarily by scribes. So if you wanted... If somebody like Isaiah wrote the whole book of Isaiah and they wanted it shared and copied and spread around, they would use, the, the Jews would use scribes to do this, Jewish scribes. And these people could read, they could write very well, 
and they were perfectionists when it came to making these copies. They weren't always perfect. That's not what I mean by that. But man, they took this job incredibly seriously. It was a very serious task. Their role was very important in preserving and spreading the scriptures and spreading texts. The method that they used was, first of all, each word had to be read by itself, alone and aloud in a room with somebody else in that room from an authentic source. They read each word individually. When the word of God was encountered, the scribe's pen had to be wiped clean every time God was encountered. Fresh ink, fresh everything, keep going. When the word Yahweh was encountered, they had to strip down and their whole body had to be cleaned every time they encountered the word Yahweh. Could you, I wonder how many baths, that's a good way to measure books, how many baths they had to take to write each book. <laughs> each letter also had a set distance. Each letter and each word had a set distance from each other. And if anything touched, the whole thing is now scrapped. So you're writing the whole book of Psalms down. And the last two letters, maybe the A and the E, the tail of the A accidentally touches the letter E. Throw the whole thing out, start again. It was a very tedious work, and they took this incredibly seriously. Not only that, each letter and word on each page was counted and rigorously checked. And then after they counted it and after they were looking at these pages, they would find on the original authoritative page the beginning, midpoint, and end letter on each individual page. And then they would compare that to the copies and make sure that everything perfectly matched up. So we're finding and counting all the different words, all the different letters, and we're double checking to make sure these match. Then they would read through them again. And that's how the copies of these were put together. Any mistake that was found, the whole work is condemned, and most of the time it was burned. But how can we ensure that the copies we have currently are really that reliable? Well, we use something known as textual criticism in order to ensure that the, the copies that we have today, the, the books that we read from, are as close to accurate as possible. And they're incredibly accurate. And what textual criticism is, is the process of obtaining the original wording of a text. They're going to compare and contrast all these different copies together. All the different copies that they found throughout the years. If we have you know, 20 copies of a text, but not necessarily the original as far as we know, we could compare and contrast these copies together and find the most accurate wording of the text that way. There are two main rules that they use when it comes to textual criticism. Rule number one, the closer the copies are to the original historically, the lower the chances of corruption in that text. If we're looking at two copies of a text, and one is only a few years older than the original, or a few years written after the original, and another one's written a few hundred years after the original. The one written a few hundred years after the original 
has a higher chance of there being a mistake or an issue made compared to the one that was written only a few years after the original. This is referred to as the time gap. Rule number two is the more copies there are, the easier it is to determine the original because you can cross-reference. You can look at all the different various copies and you can cross-reference and figure out and find what the original wording of the text was. If we have thousands of copies, which we do, it would be easier to determine that the text we have is accurate from cross-referencing all the thousands of different manuscripts compared to just having a couple different manuscripts. If you only have a couple different manuscripts, then you just gotta hope they're accurate. But that's not what we have. We have a thousands of manuscripts. And there is tons and tons of historical evidence backing up this manuscripts and backing up the accurate translations that we have today. We have nearly 6,000 manuscripts in the Greek New Testament, 5,838 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. If we include the translations written around the same time frame, we'd have 24,000 manuscripts if you include the translations written in other languages during that time, which there would have been a plenty written pretty close to when the originals were written. Why is that? Well, the gospel is for everybody. And you really get that picture in the book of Acts when they're speaking in these diverse languages to all these different people. And if you want them to be able to read the gospel and understand the gospel, you're going to make a translation so they can read and understand that. So there's a lot of really old translations, uh, manuscripts that we can look at as well, though they primarily use, obviously, the Greek for the original wording purposes. If you include the Old Testament, we have 42,000 manuscripts, including the Old and New Testament. If you compare this to any other ancient text, this greatly outweighs that of any other ancient text and is evidence pointing to the reliability of the text that we have today. Uh, a great example, if you wanted to look at Homer, Homer's the Iliad is a pretty common example that people use when comparing these two uh, is because nobody really questions the textual reliability of Homer or the Odyssey or the Iliad. Uh, the Iliad was written in 800 B.C., and the oldest manuscript we have is from 400 B.C. So we have a 400-year time gap. They only had 1,800 manuscripts, and nobody questions the reliability of Homer's The Iliad. The New Testament was written between 50 to 100 A.D., and our earliest manuscript was written and copied around 81 AD. And it's about a couple decades, few decades from its original text. The average time gap between these is about 50 years. There's about a 50 year time gap in the New Testament between the originals and the, the copies down the road. It's a very, very short time gap, a very short window between these. And it's so important because it gets us more accurate and closer. We can, we can assure we have more evidence of how close and accurate these manuscripts are. The number of manuscripts that we have just absolutely dwarfs that of any other literary texts. We aren't basing our translation off of two manuscripts written thousands of years after the original and 
hoping that we're right, like many atheists seem to think. Our English translation is based on a wealth of manuscripts copied very close to the original in order to find the most accurate wording of the first penned scriptures. A great example of one of these manuscripts that you're going to see pop up quite often when people discuss the manuscripts is going to be the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were founded in 1946, and it was a little young shepherd boy, and he was going around uh, in Wadi Qumran, and he discovered this cave, and in this cave were these jars filled with different uh, scrolls. And after this, he saw these, he saw how awesome these cool, man, these things are, these things are crazy cool. So he goes to town and he says, guys, you got to come check this out. I think I found something awesome. So everybody comes and what they do, they didn't realize what they had. You got to understand, they didn't know what they had. These aren't scholars. These are just your local yokel farm town people. And they wanted a piece of this. A lot of people wanted a piece of whatever this was. They had no idea what it was. So they took these pieces, they tore some of these pieces up so that they could share these. And once word got out that something here was found, we have a lot of archaeologists saying, whoa, 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 whoa. This is important. There's something important here. So they come and they had to try and track down all these pieces and find everything and collect as many of the fragments as they could from searching the nearby caves as well. What they found was 981 manuscripts, 225 of these were copies of the Hebrew Old Testament dating between 300 to 100 BC. The importance of this is the Old Testament was written over 3,500 years ago, roughly, depending on the book you're looking at. Before this time, before this moment, the earliest manuscript that we had for the Old Testament was around 900 AD. This, that is a very large time gap. This brings us a thousand years closer to the originals. But what's important is that this discovery shows that though there was, you know, a thousand year gap between this copy and the previous early copy that we had, there was no difference. There was hardly any difference between the two. They were nearly identical. This shows that the texts were consistently and accurately and reliably copied throughout the ages. When it comes to Isaiah, uh, the earliest copy of Isaiah before this dated to around 1500 years after the original. Now, we're 500 years closer to the book of Isaiah with the finding of these Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls contains nearly all of the book of Isaiah and shows it matches what they have, matches perfectly with the most current manuscript that we had and matches perfectly with our current translation as well. The Dead Sea Scrolls have been noted by Christian scholars to be faith-affirming, life-giving, and historically accurate by showing how accurate and how consistent Scripture has been copied and spread throughout the ages. When it comes to the New Testament, the earliest manuscript of the New Testament that we have uh, 
Greek in origin, would be John, the book of John, a fragment of it, was founded in 125 A.D. in Egypt, and it's just a fragment. It's John 18, 31 to 33 on one side, and 37 to 38 on the back. And it was showing really how much the Gospel of John had been spreading, and it's really only about a 30-year time gap between this copy and the original as it was penned. Other important manuscripts that you're going to see pop up include the Oxyrhynicus papyri, try pronouncing that one. This was found in Egypt in 1898, containing thousands of fragments with over 50 containing parts of the New Testament. The Chester Beatty papyri, these were actually named after Chester Beatty, who went down to Egypt in around 1930, and he purchased these papyri from somebody down there in Egypt. And a large portion of this contains a lot of the New Testament and dating all the way back to the second century. So around 100 to 200 AD is how far back this dates. So these are very, very close to the originals. The earliest book formats that we see, and these are often referred to as codexes, and they were just collections that people had that they had compiled together as a larger copy of all these texts. Uh, one of the most popular ones, one of those famous ones you'll see, is the Codex Sinaiticus. And this one dates back to around 350 AD. It was found at the uh, foot of Mount Sinai and contains the entire New Testament and provides an early and very reliable witness to the New Testament and how it was originally penned. Another very famous one is going to be the Codex Vaticanus. This one is named that because it was held by the Vatican since 1481. It contains both the Old and the New Testament in Greek, with the only exception being that it's missing part of the latter half of the New Testament. I believe it's Hebrews 10 on is the part that it is missing of the New Testament. But regardless, it is still considered one of the most trustworthy witnesses to the New Testament text and dates slightly earlier than that of the Codex Sinaiticus. While we see the significance of all of this, many will still argue, they will still try to argue with you that this doesn't matter with the New Testament because they believe that the early period of copying and writing down these texts was a freer period, that people were more willing to make modifications and leave something out, add something in. They'll make this argument, but the argument does not hold water. See, the Greek scribes were held to the same standard as the Jewish scribes were. Most of the writers of the New Testament were actually Jews who believed that the Old Testament was the inspired word of God and had themselves often read from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the scribes who copied the works of the New Testament were often Jewish and carried over the same rules for copying the New Testament that there were for the Old Testament. Because they knew that what they were copying was sacred text. I don't have this up there, but if you wanted to look at 
Second Peter chapter three, Second Peter chapter three, starting in verse fifteen to sixteen. It says, "An account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking to them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the." other epistles unto their own destruction. So they knew that the works that were being written by these men during the time that they were being written was in fact scripture. It was in fact the word of God. So the scribes would have also known this and therefore would have held it to the same exact standard. Not only that, all the early papyri, without any exception, all of the early papyri have a special abbreviation to designate divine titles. These abbreviations are known as nomina sacra. And they were to designate divine titles for names such as Jesus, for Lord, Christ, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, which therefore makes the system of copying these texts very complex. By having these nomina sacra, a standard was set when it came to copying these texts, and no ordinary scribe would be able to do this. This had to have been the work of professionals who have established a governed set of rules for the purpose of copying down Scripture. The Nomina Sacra speaks against the notion that the early period of copying could have possibly in any way be a free period where people could add and take away as much as they wanted to. It was done by professionals, they knew exactly what they were doing, and it was a governed set of rules that they had to follow in order to make these copies. There is no other ancient book in the world even close to the Bible when it comes to the mountain of evidence that we have proving the textual accuracy and reliability of our Old and New Testament. With that being said, there is something that exists and it occurs on occasion. We have these things known as textual variants. There are times where these happen where two or more manuscripts don't agree. And atheists love to use this as an argument, saying that we can't trust it because it, it disproves scripture in the copies that we have today because there's variations between them. There are nearly 6,000 New Testament manuscripts. Now, don't let this number scare you. There's about 150,000 variants in the New Testament manuscripts. Sounds really scary. It's really not that bad. Really, the thing is mostly its words are flipped. There's a missing letter or there's a missing word that is just like a minor word, like it's missing the or of or something like that. And a lot of the times it's things like instead of putting Jesus Christ, they'll put Christ Jesus. It's very easy for these uh, scholars to go looking through when they're translating and looking at all these different manuscripts to look at it and look at the variations thereof and figure out exactly what the original wording is because they're really minor. 
of the 150,000 variants, there's only 50 variants that are ever actually debated. And they can be very hotly debated. One of these is going to be, if you guys use, some, some people might use an NIV or an ESV. And you'll notice that sometimes it skips over verses that are there in the King James Version. You're going to see that pop up from time to time. A great example of this is going to be Acts 8.37. Acts 8.37 is often skipped over. It's the story of Philip and the eunuch. It's a verse within that story. And Philip has been preaching the gospel to this eunuch and telling him of Christ. And if you'll go back to verse 36, it says, And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, And if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It is a wonderful, wonderful confession of faith that you see the eunuch having here. But the ESV will skip over verse 37 and many other new manuscripts, or many other new translations. We'll skip over 37 and go straight from 36 to 38. And 37 will often be still there, but it's left in a footnote. There'll be an asterisk next to 36, and then there'll be a footnote at the bottom of the page. It's normally how they do it. The reason you don't see this in some English translations is because some of them are, diff are based on different primary manuscripts. See, here's the issue that stumps Bible scholars when it comes to stuff like this. <clears throat> the majority of manuscripts out there, the majority of manuscripts that exist, have verse 37. Rule number two, when it comes to textual criticism, the more you have, the more accurate you can be when it comes to finding the original text. But rule number one is the closer that you can get to the original, the more accurate you're going to be. And some of the earlier manuscripts don't have verse 37. So a lot of these newer translations will actually use what's known as the Alexandrian manuscripts, which are penned a lot earlier than some of the manuscripts that the King James Version uses, known as the Textus Receptus. And we'll kind of get back to that here in a bit. But really, the point I want to get at here is this. You know, Acts 8.37 is a great, it's a wonderful verse. It's a fantastic confession of faith. But if it's not there, that doesn't mean we're losing the doctrine to confess your faith. The message hasn't changed. No doctrine has changed. No doctrine is affected by these textual variants. We're not losing the doctrine of confessing your faith. It doesn't change the fact that we still have Romans 10, 9 to 10, saying, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. We still have Matthew 10, 32. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. 
But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. We still have the doctrine of confessing your faith. And that's really what most of these variants are. They're, they don't actually take away from any doctrine. They don't take away from the message of the gospel and what we're called to do as Christians. A, a biblical scholar named D.A. Carson puts it this way. The purity of text is of such a substantial nature that nothing we believe to be true and nothing we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardized by the variance. The Bible is not jeopardized by the variance. The truth of the Word of God is not jeopardized by the variance. Yes, they exist, but they do not change the message. They do not change the doctrine of Scripture and what it teaches us. <clears throat> now, the history of translations and how we got from these Greek and Hebrew manuscripts to the English version that we use today is a very long, arduous journey. And it starts with the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate was written in 382 AD by a Catholic priest named Jerome. Jerome was commissioned to do this by the Pope at the time, and he translated from the Hebrew and Greek into Latin. By 600 AD, this was the only version allowed that anybody could have. This was it. The problem is, most people did not speak or read Latin. They were translating into that for their own purposes. This gave full control of what was taught and what was learned, gave full control to the Catholic Church and to the priests during what is known as the Dark Ages, 400 to 1400 AD. If someone was caught with a non-Latin translation, they could be executed. This led to many false practices that many of us have heard of, such as, you know, you have the selling of indulgences, forced tithing, and the ability to purchase salvation for a loved one. This led to Martin Luther and his 95 theses, as well as many others who would step out and say, we have got to change this. It isn't right. We need to be able to read the Bible in our own language. We need to be able to study God's word ourselves. Enter John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was an English priest and scholar who saw the evil workings of the Catholic Church, and he began to rally against the Catholic Church on behalf of the people and desired that, he could read, that all could read and understand the Word of God. So he translated the Latin Vulgate into English by hand. It took him a little over a year to do this. He just kind of isolated himself and set to work on translating the whole Bible into English. The Pope was so mad about this translation that 40 years after Wycliffe's death, the Pope dug up his body, burned the bones, and scattered the ashes. That is how crazy upset that the Pope was over this translation. It was written in what is known as Middle English in the 1300s, and here's a sample of what Middle English looks like. This is Acts 2, 1 through 4. It says, And when the dais of Pentecost were in Philid, all of the disciples were in Tegidre in the same place. And suddenly there was made a sowing frohuen 
as a, of a great wind, cumin, and it filled it, all the house where they Satan, endurest tungus as fear apparited to him, and it sat on edge of him, and Allah were infilled with the holy ghost, and they begin to speak diverse languages, as the holy ghost yafta him for to speak. It is not the same language almost, but this is what it's called Middle English. People often refer to the King James Version as Old English. The King James Version is not Old English. The King James Version is considered Modern English. This is Middle English. Old English is almost not recognizable. You can't sit here and read. Like, you can kind of pick up what's being said here. You will not be able to understand Old English at all. Then, in 1455, we have the Gutenberg Bible. Uh, the Gutenberg printing press was the first printing press ever made. And the first thing to be printed on the first printing press was the Gutenberg Bible. Really, it was a Latin Vulgate. So we're still in Latin, but at least it's being widely available at this time. Then, in 1516, a man named Erasmus created a new Latin translation of the Bible, of the New Testament, by translating from Greek manuscripts that he collected as he saw that the Catholic Church was corrupt and thought they had therefore corrupted their own Latin Bible. So he made a new Latin translation. The main important thing here is that he also took those manuscripts and that he used, those Greek manuscripts, and compiled them together and printed them to make those widely available as well. And that is actually what the King James Version uses to translate the New Testament is the Textus Receptus, Greek New Testament manuscripts. Then we have William Tyndale in 1526. Uh, William Tyndale was an English linguist who played a very crucial, very important role in the Restoration and Protestant movement during that time. Uh, he used Erasmus's text as his source, and he created a new English translation of the New Testament. This was the first English translation to be printed on the printing press. But since this was seen as heresy and as a threat to the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church confiscated as many copies as possible and put many of the people that were carrying these copies to death. Tyndale had to go on the run to spread the English Bible, but he was eventually captured, and he was uh, incarcerated for over a year and a half before he was put to death publicly. He was burned at the stake publicly for his desire to share the Bible in English so that everybody could understand the gospel and read the message for themselves. Now we're getting about 200 years after the Wycliffe Bible. Here's a more updated example of uh, Acts 2, 1 through 4. Where the 50th day was come, they were all with one accord together in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as it had been the coming of a mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they sat and the 
there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as they had been fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the holy goose, still having goose, and began to speak with other tongues, even as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we're getting a little bit closer to modern English at this time. After that came the Coverdale Bible. This was written in 1535. It was the first complete uh, Bible printed in English using Latin manuscripts to translate from. So it was the Old and the New Testament, but again, it had to be translated from Latin manuscripts. From there, in 1539, we have what's known as the Great Bible. Uh, It was the first English Bible that was authorized for public use. Now, while it was authorized, it was still chained to the pulpit, and nobody was allowed to take one home with them. So it was authorized for the public, but it was not for the public. They still had full control over this Bible. In 1560, we have the Geneva Bible. It used a few scholars. There were many scholars that worked on this translation. Uh, This is often referred to as the King James, before we had the King James. And again, it played a very crucial role as as we go through this in the translation. And then in 1582 to 1609, we have what's called the Dewey Rames Bible. And this became the official Roman Catholic Bible and it used the Latin Vulgate to translate from. So they're still sticking by that Latin Vulgate, that same Latin Vulgate that a lot of these other guys are complaining about that has been corrupted by the Catholic Church, but they're still going to translate from that for their English Bible. Kind of continues their control a little bit. Then, in 1611, we got the good old King Jimmy, the King James Bible was commissioned in 1611 by King James I of England. We had over 50 scholars work to translate the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into English. It took into consideration all of the previous English translations when they did this one. It was supposed to kind of be the English translation to end all English translations. It was first, the first one was a 16 inch tall pulpit Bible Uh, They did eventually make smaller ones for the purpose of making copies. And it is the most printed book in the world. None of the ones that we have here are going to be 1611 versions of the King James Bible. You're not reading a 1611 unless it specifically says KJV 1611. What you're reading is a revision that was done during the 1700s. Then from here, we have... The English Revised Version, this was the first major revision of the King James Bible. It was done in 1885. And then from there, we have the American Standard Version. This is the first American revision of the King James Bible. Because, let's be honest, we all know if we're talking to a British person, we're not really going to always understand what they're saying. Language has changed and it flows gradually over time and because of that because we've been separated from britain for so long language has changed and evolved and so that is what the american standard version kind of took into account when revising the king james bible into the american standard version 
Then in 1971, we have the New American Standard Bible, the NASB. This is considered to be one of the most accurate word-for-word -word translations of the Bible that you're going to get. And it's one of the most easily available when trying to find the most <laughs> accurate word-for-word -word available. The issue that some people have with the New American Standard Bible is that due to it being so word-for-word, -word, many complain about its readability. Since it is so strict when it comes to its translation, um, because things have kind of changed in modern English grammar and stuff like that, is not the same as Greek grammar and Greek structure and their words and their uses. Then in 1973, another big one came on the scene. That was the New International Version. The New International Version was published as a phrase-for-phrase -phrase translation. This means they took the passages, they would read the passage in Greek and, or in Hebrew, and they would try to write an accurate phrase-to-phrase -phrase translation of what was being meant, what they said, and how they try to get as close to the meaning of it instead of just the word-for-word -word of it. An example of this I think of is, you know, think of how we translate Spanish to English. When we translate Spanish to English, we don't go word for word all the time when we're translating. If I were to ask Miguel here, hey, Miguel, ¿cuántos hermanos? Miguel's going to look at me and tell me he has two siblings. What I asked him was, how many siblings do you have? That's what I asked him. That's pretty accurate. The literal translation of what I asked him is, what quantity of brothers? That's what I asked him. I asked, what quantity of brothers? But he knows that I'm talking about his siblings, brothers and sisters, even though hermanos is masculine, and language is so different from other languages. Each language is going to have its own little quirks and things that's different from the others, and that kind of makes translation difficult so the New International Version tried to go phrase for phrase. While I do not suggest the use of this Bible necessarily when suggesting a translation, it should not be considered the same, I feel, as other thought for thoughts, like the message in the NLT, though a lot of bias can still enter into even the NIV when it comes to translating phrase for phrase. That said, you know, it's one of those things, if you're studying with somebody and they're getting really excited and they're really pumped and they go out and they buy a Bible and they come over to your house or you go over to their house and they're wanting to study out of this Bible that they just bought and it just so happens to be an NIV, you can still work with them. If you want to bring your own Bible, you can still work with them. They can read from theirs, you can read from yours, and you're going to get pretty accurate. You still would want to suggest, obviously, to get a better translation, a word for word. There's nothing wrong with that. But I will say, when it comes to the NIV, you can still work with somebody with something like that. So I, I'm not going to say anything too bad against that. If it was the message or if it was the NLT, get that out of here. Let's use your phone. We'll pull up something better. But the NIV itself is not as bad as a lot of the other ones that are out there. Then in 1982, we had the new King James Version came on the scene. <laughs> came out in 1982, and really all it did was remove the these, thous, and thuses. 
So it's the exact same wording, the exact same phrasing, just that these thous and thuses are now gone. It's fairly readable. And if you're at a church like ours, where we primarily use the King James Version, but you want to have something at home that's readable and that you can come to church and follow along with easily, New King James Version is a great option to choose from just because it's very easy to follow along and it just changes the these, thous, and thuses. In 2002, we had the English Standard Version came on the scene. It is a great word-for-word translation. What they did, they tried to bridge the gap between the accuracy of the NASB and the readability of the NIV. They primarily did this through grammar and changing the grammar of phrases but trying to maintain the word-for-word as well. So it is an accurate word-for-word translation of the Bible, um, but it is a lot more readable than some. Again, the NASB is still more accurate than the English Standard Version, but it's a decent choice. While the Bible has gone through quite the journey to get to where it is today, the English Bible that we have today All the evidence points to the fact it has continued to maintain the essential truth and the word of God and the will of God within the texts. While it's important for us to look deeply into these verses, I think it's very crucial to study and try to discern the different versions from one another and learn what they are and to to look at the translations. There's so much you can learn by looking at the way words are translated. The Bible we have today is still accurate It's still reliable, unchanged, inerrant, and the infallible word of God. But I I do encourage you, man, look into the translations. Look into how they translated things. Do word studies. Figure out why they translated things certain ways. A great example of that is Ben's study on hell. When he was talking about Gehenna and the way Gehenna is translated into hell. When, let's be honest, it probably should have stayed as Gehenna. That way, we as Christians, we who are studying this, can better understand that this word is different and there's different meaning behind this than there is on the other words that are translated as hell as well. And there's all sorts of stuff that you're going to find in there, but the word itself is accurate, is inerrant, and it is infallible. And we can, in fact, trust the Bibles that we hold today. Regardless of how many people try to question the textual reliability of Scripture, the mountain of evidence will always point to the fact that we can, in fact, trust the Word of God that we hold in our hands today. I thank you for your time this morning. Um, If anybody has any needs of the church, have any issues in their life that they need to bring up that they're needing prayer for, uh, feel free to come forward as we stand and sing the song. That's been selected. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.